לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Hello and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamit in Highland Park, New Jersey. Highland Park Conservative Double Congregation on Sham. And joining me are my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Shekhar Day School of Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, Anshay Chesed, New York City, on sabbatical. We are so happy to be with you this uh, for this Parsha Talk. I'm going to Israel. Um, we're recording it before my flight, so... Wish me a good trip. <laughs> in Israel, it's also going to be Parshat Shmini, which, of course, is an amazing Parsha. Parshat Shmini picks up from last week's Parsha, Parshat Tzav. We've gone seven days. The Kohanim are sequestered in the Ohamo Eid, seven days. They are ready to assume the mantle of leadership, the mantle of their priestly leadership in the sanctuary and there is a culminating ceremony that they do which consists of a whole menu of sacrifices we don't have to go into all the details of these sacrifices it's fascinating there's a bull etc and, and all these things and trust me on this the penultimate moment is a moment of blessing the moment where aaron blesses it it's fresh in my mind because i just taught this today Okay, so it says in verse uh, 22, So Aaron raises up his hands to the people and he blesses them. He comes down from doing the sin offering and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings or the shlamim. And then, the two of them, Moses and Aaron, go into Olamo'ed, and they come out, and then they bless the people, they bless the people, so I'm, I'm, I'm convinced, not convinced, I'm, I want to offer this interpretation of this, which is that as the penultimate moment of the, of the whole ritual, um, there needs to be a way to involve the people because everything that has been going on, the sacrifices, the burning up of things, the cutting up of things has been going, the, the blood on the altar has been going on away from their sight. So the people are outside and there needs to be a moment of boundary. And the idea is that what's going on on the inside is going on in total silence. This is, the, um, the, the, the work of Yisrael. No, we mentioned him last week, the sanctuary of silence, that there are no words, there are no, there's no incantations, no, no prayers that are done when the, when the sacrifices are made. And they, they have to involve the people. So that he says in his words that the, the sanctuary is an island of silence in a sea of kind of cacophony, of noise. And Moses and Aaron, first Aaron goes, 
and he blesses them, and then it's Moses and Aaron, and they're going in and out of the of the sanctuary at the edge on the boundary, the boundary between silence and sound. And then what happens? What happens? Of course, the, there's such a great conversation in in the literature about what's the content of the blessing. Is it the priestly blessing? Is it not the priestly blessing? It's a great machloket. But the very next scene, the ultimate moment, but Adonai, a fire comes out from God, it consumes, then you have that idea of the fire that is consuming on the altar, the burnt offering, all of the fat pieces, the people see it, and how would you translate Vayarono? I'm going to turn to you, Jeremy, for that. I would say, uh, um, sing for joy. Because Rina, we know that Rina, one of the meanings of Rina is is kind of prayer um, in the Bible. El Hatfila, Lishmoa El Harina ve El Hatfila, we say it in Slichot, but it's a biblical quotation from Jeremiah, I think. Um, so Rina is a joyful prayer. Uh, and Vayaronu, uh, Ron is is a moment of joy. This is this is the best. I mean, they have been working on this. Uh, we we talked earlier and maybe last week or two weeks ago, like putting the chronology together. If if you work it all out, as Rashi says, this is the day that is described in Parshat uh, Pikude as the first day of the month of Nisan. It's the first day of the first month. They've been setting it up and they've been doing all of the the Miluim, to get the priests ready. And today is the eighth day, the first day of the month of Nisan. It's been a, a year since they were slaves. What a tremendous achievement they have had in building this Mishkan, in making a place for the God will dwell among them. It couldn't, literally, it couldn't be better. So I would offer a slight variation. I would say that they exploded in joy. Nice. Um, and, you know, Elliot, as often as the case, I was struck by the language that you use. So I, I think what we have here is a counterpoint to Sinai. Sinai, which is the province of the book of Exodus, is a very noisy affair. And that's where God appears to the whole nation. But what we have in the Ohel Moed and in the Mishkan is God's presence, is Kavod, appearing to the people over and over again. And that is continual. And I think that the priestly contribution here is to make that part silent so that we have the noise of Sinai, but in the daily life of the people, we have the silence of the Mishkan. Fascinating. I, 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 I want to say that, that, you know, it's been a long, long time since any of us, I think, have been together at a, a, a large event where people are roaning, fire <laughs> right? And that, that, it takes place in different ways. There's a structured Vajaronu and there's a wild Vajaronu. And, and, you know, structured Vajaronu, I'm thinking of like concerts, you know, where, where and, and I've been to very few, you know, but, but when, when, there's, when it's going, it's going. I mean. I oh, my know. gosh. Yeah. And, and that. Springsteen that, shows. No, there, there's. Dead. Billy Joel. Lahav deal. Lahav. I mean. But, but it's an Lomo event. Lomo Karlbach. Okay, fine. So look, these things are events. They're, they're, they fill up Madison Square Garden. The people are on their feet. They're singing. They're they're screaming. Or they're, you know, and uh, just, you know, 
when when there's a sporting event then people you know someone scores and people you know are the the house shakes have you ever been oh yeah okay so so the house shakes and and it's all but there's nobody there's nobody conducting it and it's and it it could go awry it could go it could go the wrong way and 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 we'll get to that in a second here but i'm thinking like you know you're thinking that there's ecstasy here and I'm thinking that that there's a there's just a, a little bit of danger. There's a little bit of wildness here. It's right on the edge of of ecstasy and wildness, and that's so, that's a dangerous place to be. So that's an echo then of the golden calf scene. Yes, exactly. Where you have a similar expression of exaltation that goes definitely awry. Okay, so so why well, don't we just? So I, I want to say this is really interesting because. The golden calf, I mean, like I said, I think this is an entirely positive moment. Um, but the golden calf story does hover over this story in a big way because, you know, um, it is a very plausible reading that the, uh, and, and I can expatiate upon this if you'd like, that the, the deaths of Nadav and Avihu, which we're going to talk about in one second, are really the punishment to Aaron for the Golden Calf episode. So it, it I'm going to stick with, this is a total moment of total success up until now. But if I wanted to go the other way, that thought that that the that the um, you know that the people in in out of control revelry laps into idolatry is is hovering over the scene. That's that's, that's also a very powerful reading. Well, right. there's a connection then between Eshara and Avodazara. Here we go with with the, there's Vayarono and then there's Vayipluop Nehem. So maybe maybe I have to kind of come you know come down from the trees here. I have to say no. You just have to fall on your face like I your have ancestors. To fall on my face. You have to fall out of humility. Face. No. So there is ecstasy. So so it's what kind of ecstasy and what kind of wildness includes you know falling on your face. Vayipluop Nehem. I I usually whenever I see Vayipluop Nehem, it's like I always think like. It's like an exasperation with with the patriarchs, with Moses, but but maybe here it's actually there's fervor. Maybe I think it's mostly reverence. I I would agree with Jeremy. It's complete submission. That's how we submit. Is we fall. Well, it's on often the it's often prayer. Um, you know, it's often prayer. So specifically, so I I think at this moment it it might be you know really worship. I'm only smiling because we're so committed to our interpretations. I'm so committed. I, I I wanted to say I wanted to say what I think I want I wanted to say, but but I have to I have to. You well, know. you know that you know the definition of of pshat is, which is yes. Pshat is what I say the text means, and drash <laughs> is what you say the text means. Okay, so at the very next moment, let's see if we can go just to the next frame here, the next verse. Aaron, the sons of Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, they take their 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 frying pan, their their what their incense pan, ishmachtato, the little pan, right, shovel pan, and they put a, a an ash in it, a fire, which is probably a coal. They take their cinnamon or their own mixture and they 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 put their their spice mixture on the pan. And they come before God with this ash zara. So we are using the term Eshara in the most technical, I'm going to present the most technical in, uh, uh, definition, which is uh, it, it's not, it doesn't belong here. It's a fire 
that comes from outside the holy precinct. It's tainted with impurity or tainted with outside. It's, it's, it's a total violation of the rules. It's like the nuclear operator took the wrong thing and boom, catastrophic result, right? Asher loti va'otam. It's, it's not that God didn't command them. Yeah, God didn't command because it's not in the rules. But the unbridled fire of God came and consumed them and they died. This guy. Okay, well, so if you're in the presence you, of the Lord, I think that's the, the key part. But so if you want to, and you would not be the first person in Jewish history, you know, of course, our first reaction is this is a punishment. As I floated before, then, you know, this could be a punishment for Aaron. But if you wanted to, and and Rashi quoting the Gemara and Zbachim flirts with this, uh, you can say that this is not punishment at all. It's a reward that that the Nadav and Avihu, it may not be an easy reward to accept, but they are the sacrifices themselves which sanctify the Mizbech. Because look, just look at the parallel of the of the verses. Um, uh, where were we? Back, verse 24. The fire comes forth from before the Lord and consumes on the altar the Ola and the Chalavim, the, the right, sacrifice so, so, in the past. So you now, have... yeah, now fire comes out and, and consumes them. Right. So if you wanted to say this is a kind of an ecstatic death, and there are there are there are some midrashim that point in this direction, then they are offering themselves, you know, in this in this ecstatic thing. It may not be easy, it may not be what we would wish for our children, certainly isn't what we would wish for our children, but it's not the this the story is so richly poetic because of that language and might open up the possibility of of this alternate reading. Okay, well, so this then so, which is, I'm sorry, would you, is that a religion that you can live with? Is that, you know, I mean, or, or, would well, you, no, that's the religion you die with. <laughs> or would you put that in the category of like, okay, this is up there with the Akeda as well? A, I want to make a connection with the Akeda. So, Jeremy made, made a tentative connection. So, what we have with the Akeda is God does not take the son whom he commanded Abraham to offer, but with Nadav and Avi, who he takes the sons we did not command to offer. And so you have a counterpoint to that. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I continue to puzzle over is the apparent uh, redundancy of Eshara and Asher Lotzi Vautam. Because it would have been enough to say either one. They offered a strange fire and died, or they did what God did not command them. And I, I, what I have thought for a long time, that the Eshara is not something that's forbidden. It's just something that was not required. And Nadav and Avihu thought they were doing something extra, more than was required. And that's what got them into trouble. Because sometimes we try to do too much. You know, the the way the expression ultimately comes down, when you grab too much, you lose everything. And rather than be content with their role, which, and, you know, what we've seen in this, these three chapters, eight, nine, and 10, is the, delineation of the priestly roles at this moment of ordination or investiture, however we want to characterize it, their boundaries are being set, right? The final piece of the Mishkan is to set the boundaries of the Kohanim who will work there. We have everything is in its proper place, and now the Kohanim have to be in the proper place, and the Davanavihu 
break that boundary. So I want to say, I, I think I can understand why the Baalei Amidrash, the authors of Midrashim, would would include such a, a kind of imagery and, and, you know, theme in it, you know, of, of it, basically it, it links up to martyrdom. You know, martyrdom was, was a phenomenon that, that was familiar to them. I mean, they, they were traumatized by the destruction of the temple, traumatized by the Bar Kokhba rebellion. The memory of those events certainly lingered on for hundreds of years, possibly, uh, beyond, you know, well into the time of the writing of the Mishnah and the writing of uh, the Midrashim. The, the, these are, you know, people don't have living memory of it, but they have tradition memory of, of all the same way that, that we, you know, have, you know, we are of a generation that doesn't have living memory of the Holocaust, but we have living memory of witnesses of the Holocaust who live, you know, still may they be, maybe they live long and be well, and they still are with us. And they have direct experiences of, of catastrophe. But, but, I wouldn't go. I mean, it's like, would you go there? <laughs> would you... Yeah. Well, so let me so let me slightly defend this. Um, first of all, I think you are on the nose to to think about you know late Second Temple, um, early post destruction, you know religion of the people of Israel, which by the way includes that heretical sect that became pretty successful for whom martyrdom was was very very central. Josephus. Josephus actually says, you know, Jews just have martyrdom in their blood. Okay. They, they, they have a practice of martyrdom. So I think that in the, you know, being under the Roman empire and having all of this stuff that, that happened like in actual historicity in those times, I think that did play its role. And, but, and Elliot, you and I have had this machloket for, for a couple of years, all through the Vaikra is that I do think that the people identified with the offering of the self in the Korban. Yeah. And so I think that, again, as a mythic story of how it is that, um, how it is that, that the, the, the Mizbeach, the altar is, is dedicated for its first appearance. I think the story of a human sacrifice is not out of place. By the way, I am going to go down in the end with saying, Yes. <laughs> that it's the punishment for Aaron for the golden calf, but I think that this alternative reading of the ecstatic death and of the self-sacrifice in Nadav and Avihu is part of the poetic resonance of the whole pas- passage as well. Look, I, I like I like the rabbinic caricature char- characterization of Aaron too much to 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 think that he was he was punished in such a terrible way. You know this 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 kind of punishment and and. It's it's not it, it goes against the grain. It's not his infraction. His infraction was at the at the at the calf. He should have been punished for it. his children. His son shouldn't be punished for his his infraction. They they made an infraction. They stepped up. They they're out of bounds. They got the they got the flag on the field. <laughs> right, but I think, and I want to actually say something similar to this a, a little while ago. That the difficulty I think with reading the Davina Bihu as uh, as a their deaths as being a reward is I don't think that that's actually a biblical idea. Um, the biblical idea, of course, is that children do pay the price for the sins of their fathers. Perhaps the most famous or infamous example was the first child conceived by David and Bathsheba died for David's sin, not for its own sin. When King Ahav is given a reward for some good behavior, he said, God, God says, I won't punish you. I'll, I'll kill your son. Right. Um, you know, so we have that idea in the Bible. So it's not out of line in the context of the Torah 
to have Nadav Navihu be the burden for Aaron's sin. But there's an over, overwhelming rejection of that, I think. I mean, within by the you. Well, by me. By, by the, which, which you are very entitled to do as a... Thank you very much. Okay. But, but Barry's quite right. And by the way, and this is this is my number one piece of proof here, is that when Yerobam ben Nabat builds in, in First Kings, builds a altar, builds with a, a shrine with golden calves, his child, Aviyah, <laughs> dies as punishment for, for, for the golden calf. So his children are Nadab and Aviyah, and Aviyah dies as the punishment. So yeah, but I do you, think that is correct. Me, I think don't, there is a, we don't huh? build our religious life on... on, on, on no, no. It's, you're, you're, free, you're free today you're free. to say, I don't want to go there. But it is true that in the in the Bible, I think it Barry's right that this is a recurrent theme, not just an occasional one. Okay, okay. So let's put that aside for a second. But just let's 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 enter into the frame of this idea, which is, you know, tragic things happen. I mean, just on on the surface of it. Okay, forget you know you know all of our very spiritual ideas here. But death happens. Violent death happens at the climactic moment of the of the um, dedication ceremonies the you know, it's like, it's like the Meron tragedy. It's like, I, but forget, you know, these, these tragic things that I, it's in the Bible itself. There are tons of episodes where things reach a climactic moment and everything goes downhill. Yaakov arrives, you know, whole after meeting Asaph and it goes downhill after that, you know, Mahmud Harsinai, they stand at Mount Sinai and then, you know, the, the, the golden calf. This moment is, is a, is a tragic moment. The moment of the, in the, in the Haftarah, which is they take the, or the golden, the, the Ark of the Covenant, right? And it, you know, they put it on the wagon and it's kind of jostling and Uzzah puts it out his hand and, you know, touches the Ark can't touch the ark right so the, the the great moment where david is taking the ark up to jerusalem is is marred by tragedy and i want to ask is this is this what would have happened if we if we just had and everything ended happily ever after <laughs> so elliot i think that that's a great question because with the haftarah story which is not the haftarah this year because it's parsha's para um the third of the special shabbat before pesach i think that in the alter, the alternate reading to the Uzzah story doesn't make any sense. But if Uzzah doesn't reach out and save the ark, and the ark falls on the ground, I don't know anyone who thinks that would have been the preferable alternative. But the question that the deaths of Nadav and Abihu raised is what was supposed to happen? How was this great day in the life of the nation supposed to end? And the deaths interfere with our contemplating that alternate view but it's worth thinking about it's it look i i i mentioned mayron so last year at lagba omer there's it's exactly like this okay you know thousands and thousands tens of thousands of people are congregating at this one tiny place and they're lighting bonfires and the people are going in ecstasy and there's all sorts of famous and holy rabbis you know with with these different ceremonies and Dozens of people are killed in a crush, and and you're left with like this is what it's about. This is what. So there's members of our community, the rabbi and Robinson, Their nephew was one of the victims. He's still in the still hospitalized almost well, a year later. Are, you know their lives are bended because of loss and yeah. because of of injury. Well, so, 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 so Elliot, I think I think you you. Um, I mean, I love this this approach and this question because 
religion, you know, you, you, you one may have this desire that religion be like, you know, Santa Claus and everything just ends happily ever after. Um, and the reality of life, even, even for people of faith, is that there is a rupture between the, the like the little signals and hints of, of incipient perfection that are out there, which are never actually going to be, you know, maintained or never going to be actually, act, uh, you know, accessible on a, on a unambiguous way. We're always going to have some success and some failure. And so the, the Torah tells these stories, um, you know, in the ways that you, the ways that you said, just to, to narrate a piece of human existence that is always going to be kind of wonderful and kind of heartbreaking. And so, yeah, no, I think that, that I, I don't know if you have this experience, but sometimes when I look out at the shul and I do this kind of like, yeah, this one's had this, this one's had this, this one's had this, this one's had this, you know, it's a dimension of everybody's life, you know, on, on, you know, loss. Okay. Yes. But there's also, everybody has a story of, of, and, and everybody interprets something that didn't turn out the way they wanted in, in their lives. And, and almost as if it's a tragedy. And so for some people, like real, tra- like real, like, like, how do you say real tragedy? Everybody has a tragic dimension of life. And, and so what, what the reason why I guess I'm drawn to this is because it's, it's, it is real. It, it's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't appreciate the story if, if kind of they all went home and they all had, you know, supper. Okay. Everybody went home and they roasted a lamb in their yard and they all had supper. Okay. That's not the way it works in life. And, and, and maybe. Well, okay. So, so hang, so hang on a second. So, you know, what I said about, because uh, everybody goes home and they roast the lamb and they have supper and it's a wonderful evening and they have to get up tomorrow and go back to work. And, you know, you finish Yom Kippur and, uh, Yom Kippur ends, Ne'ila ends, and then for those, you, you rope a few people into saying Ma'ariv at the beginning, <laughs> is this when Yom Kippur is over, and the first words of which are, avon, and God in his mercy will forgive us our sins. Here we are, we've just, we've all been free. Why do we have to still, still daven again? We've all been cleansed. No, you actually still have to, because everything is provisional, and so you do get to have dinner, and so you should get to celebrate the lamb while you have it, but with the awareness that you don't get through this and then have perpetual feasting for the rest of your life. Um, so when we when we talked about the, you know, the Torah is somewhat confusing. In Parshat Tetzaveh, back in, in Exodus, it says, here's the sacrifice for the Miluim, for the Kohanim. And then it doesn't say it again. And then it says it again at the end of last parasha. And so as Rashi puts, Rashi in the Midrash puts it all together. Um, in Exodus 29 or 3rd, whatever it was, it said you're going to you're going to have these sacrifices. You're actually going to perform them in Leviticus uh, eight or wherever that is, and so that's you know there's a, a disruption in the story. And this piece on the first day of Rosh Chodesh Nisan, which is described at the end of Exodus, now we have the the dedication of the altar and everything we're going to get in Parshat Naso, this big feasting where each of the tribes brings all this gold and the silver and all of the offerings that they're going to bring. This starts the very next day. So one day, Nadav and Avihu die. The next day, 
they have to, they, the whole people engages in the next round of celebration. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about this incredibly impo- powerful story, which you should tell us, Elliot, okay. in the tragic dimension about Aaron and what he can and cannot do okay. as a priest. What what part of the sacrifice is? How, what his, right. what so, should so, his response so, be to the part of the sacrifice? This is why I think I think I think I and you and we all, Barry, also, you know, we all respond to it, you know, because it it does reflect life. Yeah, you have to get up the next day, and and I think that comports with most people's experience of reality most people you know do do suffer uh extreme events some terribly tragic and they're and the the thing that keeps them going is the knowledge that they got to get up and yet you got to continue you got to choose life and you got to keep going and that as difficult as as painful as it is and dark it's it's just reality it's just the real essence of life okay so what's that darker yeah, I do. <laughs> so, 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 just say the piece about Aaron and the sacrifice. So this that's is really important. So Aaron and the sacrifice. So, so there are the two corpses lying, and then Moses wants to finish the job. And this is where you, you know you kind of want to shake Moses and say, "Can't you see? Can't you see what's going on here?" And, and Moses is is so afraid that they don't complete the the necessary ritual aspect of the sacrifice. They they haul in the cousins, the the priestly cousins, to to take out the bodies. They have to take out the bodies with with kutanata, you know, with, with garments, they take them out so that Aaron could, could finish it. And Aaron doesn't want to finish it, okay? And Moses acquiesces to, to Aaron. Aaron says, look, I can't, I can't do it. You know, there, there's, it can't do it because the ritual, you know, character of the sanctuary has been temporarily suspended by the presence of death there. And Moses gets it. Okay, but the 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 conflict at the moment is we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this without being particularly attentive to the horrible human dimension of tragedy that has just taken place. It's a it's a phenomenal moment. I hope I got it more or less. You know what whatever. Okay, so we we don't have a lot of time to talk about some other very important pieces of this portion, namely uh, Kashu chapter eleven. We get the dietary loss in this in this chapter. So it's through the you know why in in Vayikra why in this chapter has to do with purity. Tome and Tahor, Barry, you want to just extend that for a second? So the the dietary laws appear twice here in Vayikra and Parshat Shmini, and again in um, in uh, Sefer Devarim and Parshat Re'eh. And there, it's the context is holiness, and here it's purity, and the. Uh, Continuation of the chapter after the dietary laws in here in Vayikra and Parshat Shmini has to do with other things that become impure and how they can become pure once again. And you know, we were talking before the show. I wonder sometimes if we have completely abandoned this idea of purity in our religious lives today. And while I don't have anything specific I could point to, I wonder if there is a way we might reclaim it. And, you know, eating is obviously essential to being human. It's also essential to being alive, no matter what form your life takes. Um, And purity is something that we impose from the outsider. God imposes upon us. And it's a way to make ourselves more than we are, I think. Um, It's not something that we associate with animals. Most of the time we associate animals with impurity, one of the laws in the chapter is going to be what happens if you come into contact with a dead animal. Um, and that renders you impure and you have to, you know, remove yourself from the community, take a bath, wash your clothes and wait until evening until you can come back again. 
Um, so it's just something, you know, part of the expression is food for thought. No, you know, I think, I think it does play out in, in, in people's lives. You know, we just, we just said uh, Shalach Manas, okay? Just said Purim, okay? So you get a lot of candy and a lot of cakes and a lot of stuff. And there's stuff that I receive, which I'm, I'm so grateful for, but, but I just, you know, I don't eat this, I don't eat this, this candy, right? It's, it's, and, and especially if it has high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> and, and because I don't want to, people watching, we have an issue with that high fructose corn syrup. But, you know, we, we all shop, we all do our groceries and, and we're all selective. And, and there are, there's, there's various mishigas in the world about, about how we buy and consume food. And, and um, I, think, I think this dimension plays out in some way in, in, in the marketplace. You know, some people w- are willing to part with more of their money if they are, can vouch for, quote, you know, the provenance of their food. Um, and, you know, why is there a farm-to-table movement out there? Why is there uh, organic why is there, I get a, 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 an email regularly because, you know, during the height of the pandemic, none of us was going to store. So we were all ordered. So there was a guy who shipped fresh vegetables from Ohio. They were delicious. They're amazing. Okay. And so like, uh, yeah, you know, you're, you're willing to pay a little more so that it can, you have that sense of, I don't know what else to call it, purity. Right. And so I think there is, there is um, an appetite. Well, because because first of all, let, let's just note that Homo sapiens, you know, one of the great anxieties is the ways in which we are just like all the other animals and totally different from all the other animals. And we we tend to, I mean, eating as as you guys said is is one of the most animal things that we can do. We have to be like all the other animals. We have to consume the things that can give us energy and. And as we process them in our bodies, then we are reminded once again how, how animal we are. And so we call our cultures, you know, want to layer those things with choices and, and differentiation. So it t- tells a story. So it helps us feel pure. It helps us feel thoughtful. We want to de-automatize and, and de-animalize ourselves to, to some extent, even though that's obviously impossible. So when we tell stories about this is kosher and this is trafe. This is tahor, pure, and this is tameh, uh, impure. This is uh, organic and healthy. This is artificial and unhealthy. Um, you know, we're, we are trying to impart, I think, culturally experiences of the way people should eat. And certainly, you know, e- even for someone like myself who is, who is, who is a, you know, omnivore or still consumes meat, like we, we have to reckon with the enormous animal suffering that is that is created by our you know factory farming. It's, it, if we thought about it too much, we really wouldn't do it. But that's not in 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 Vayikra. But so in Vayikra, the various categories of the permitted and forbidden foods, which you know, I, I would like to say that that it does tell a narrative. It does tell a story of creation. But we were you know one of our our favorite topics is. So what's the meaning? What's the what's the What are the the reasons for the commandments? Go, you know, when someone sits down with you to let's say convert to Judaism, and you say, okay, well, you're going to have to stop eating pork, stop eating shellfish, um, eat only kosher food, kosher food slaughtered properly, blood removed, etc. No meat and milk, no more cheeseburgers. And they say to you, but Rabbi Kavanovsky, why? Why? <laughs> why? What's the reason? 
Well, I'm going to confess just to the two of you, and nobody else will ever hear me say this, <laughs> that, that I, I actually, in, my, in the repertoire of my religious observance, kashrut is about obedience. I think that the rules are, are kind of arbitrary. And some of them, you know, like the draining of the blood, um, I, 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 get to, I get into that. But I, I, I would say that it is about um, regulating our appetites and us and culture. Like this is Jewish culture. Food culture is culture. The stuff we eat, the way we eat, that's culture. I personally, you know, don't worry. I still do it. I wouldn't consider not doing it. I don't find the specific rules that meaningful. Okay, but so 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 then you know you're the 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 person coming to you to say, well, why should I do it? Why you know? So I'll tell you why I do it. And I there, there have been a few periods of my life when I did not keep kosher. Um, and uh, the last time I wrestled with the issue, I'm trying to decide whether I should keep kosher or not again. And I decided that keeping kosher was the Jewish way to eat, even if no Jews did it. That it's so much a part of Jewish culture, as Jeremy put it, or Jewish history, that this is the distinctive Jewish way to live. A Jew might decide not to keep kosher, but then they're not eating Jewish. So what makes us part of the Jewish community, in part, is the way that we eat. So you're, and, you're go ahead, yeah. Yeah, so what I would say is that this is the way to be Jewish. It, and that, I think, speaks to the community issue. And I would add one other point, because we add, end up with something very crazy today. It used to be, I think, based on a reading of Vayikra, that the reason to keep kosher was to separate Jews and non-Jews. And nowadays, kashrut is often used to separate Jews from eating with other Jews. Yeah. We all know cases where someone's not kosher enough for someone else. And whatever your conception of kashrut, that can't be the right way, no, in I, my opinion. I, I agree with you, I, you know, but it's it's interesting to me that we all have different perspectives on this. I mean, you, you're, Barry, you're, you're more like peoplehood Kaplan here. You, you know, Jeremy, it's... It's, uh, it's my one concession to Kaplan. Kaplan, right? That's where so, I draw the line. And you're saying, look, Tom, I mean, it's what it's 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 what it says. I may not I may not necessarily accord with with you know the energy necessary to to figure out a reason for it. And I'm saying that there's 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 a narrative here. And I, I like Mary Douglas, Rabbi Miriam Douglas, you know, who said that this is about creation and that and that we are locating ourselves within creation, selecting foods that. You know, uh, comport with the 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 various realms of creation: the land, the water, the air, uh, and that we select those those foods, those animals that are, you know, perfectly suited for those uh, realms of of creation. Uh, and then, then, of course, the the slaughter with with which has as its goal the removal of most of the blood, all of the blood, if that's possible, even. Um, and so that we're in this narrative of creation and and and, and holiness. I would go more in the holy w w way than in. I would go more Deuteronomy than Leviticus here. Narrative. Over. Well, that's that's conventional. I would add a point. One of my teachers, Rachel Dulem, when I was a student at Spurtis, said that if we accept the premise of kashrut that we're going to have dietary laws, the actual dietary laws that we have are very practical because it's very easy to tell if an animal chooses cud and has a split hoof. 
even though, of course, the Torah sort of makes a mistake. Rabbits don't do their God, just looks like they do. Bats are not birds. But each category provides you with a lot to eat and a lot that you don't eat. So you're not going to go hungry and you're not going to have to worry too much about whether you're getting the right animal. And that's also that's a different kind of narrative than than the one you're describing, but it still is part of the story of the people, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say, by the way, you know, if somebody if somebody comes and asks me about conversion and I talk about Kashrut, of course, but I actually emphasize brachot more. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the saying of brachot, I think, is is a uh, is, is part of our Jewish food culture. It's not, you know, in Parshat Shmini, but the the ritual aspects of eating blessing before and after, I think, is is huge. It's the attitude of gratitude. And that's really Absolutely. the key to religion. It's not well, what you eat. It's how you eat. We are reaching the end of our little show here. We've got a lot of food for thought, as usual. <laughs> and uh, it's been wonderful. This has been... And we well, this, send, is and we one send, day, this is an episode you can save. There yeah, you go. we send Elliot off to, to Eretz Yisrael so you can Imagine go... to see Yaakov and Nama, and uh, I'll have plenty of vegan food in Tel Aviv. All right, so... We have all a Shabbat Shalom for Parshat Shabbat Shalom. Another edition of Parshat